this is the podcast going beyond salvation and this is your host Jess Robinson and this is the portion on New Testament and we are going through the book of Acts right now and when we finished off uh, with chapter 3 Peter and and John had you know prayed uh, well that they had healed the the lame man and and then you know through the you know the Holy Spirit just opened up the opportunity for Peter to preach and what ends up happening is we go into chapter 4 and Peter and John are arrested by the you know the Sadducees come up um, they they ruled over the temple and the highest ranking Sadducee, as we talked about, the high priest led the Sanhedrin, which was essentially what we would know as our Supreme Court today. It, it's kind of the similar as our Supreme Court today. This is where they governed um, the, the Israelites, other than for a few things, you know, with, with the Roman rule. But so they're, you know, there's this great move of God and then all of a sudden they're, they're arrested and put in jail overnight. And people go, wow, you know, they, they see, you know, doing a work of God resulting into bad things. That's not necessarily what is true. You know, when we look you know, at, at an important lesson from Acts 3 and 4, it's, it's this. Whenever a great work of God is about to be advanced, leadership will be severely tested. You know, a great victory had, has been won for God. The church stands at the brink of even greater things, and that's when the enemy strikes. Because in his mind, he's like, I have to stop this before it goes any further. So Satan tries to discourage or destroy the leadership. He that is one of his key plans because you know Peter and John are essentially leaders of the early church because they were there with Jesus. They were what we call apostles because they were part. They were there with Jesus. So he will attack the leadership that's why it's so important as believers to be praying for your pastor those who are in leadership on your your deacon those who you know run the youth group youth leaders all of that you need to be praying for them because they are the ones that get severely attacked you know for because they're doing what god wants them to do they are doing god's work and so they essentially live with a target on their back and it's a huge part about praying and and encouraging those who are in leadership in your church and how satan you know he seeks to destroy you know to discourage and destroy christians through fear and this is what i i like to say and and what i've learned through the class is that while fear looks at the future with negativity, faith sees the future with hope. And so, like essentially today, like we look with the coronavirus, what's going on? 
and even with the riots, people t tend to look through the scope of fear and negativity when, as Christians, we need to look to the future with hope, knowing that, one, we have hope in Jesus and allow Him to work through us as, as the body of Christ to reach out to the, to the people that are living in fear right now. So, you know, and leaders are not the only ones who are attacked or crushed for doing good. It's, you know, anyone who spends time with other people, even Christians, will get hurt sooner or later. You know, you, you'll get hurt by your coworkers who are not believers. You'll get hurt by coworkers that are believers but are in a different denomination that may not necessarily you know, they think they're they're doing God's work by cutting you down or hurting you. You know, your motives are going to be un misunderstood. Your work for God is going to be overlooked or criticized. You know, Christians who are wounded while working for God must not give in to discouragement. And it's hard. You want to get into discouragement. You want to get away from the problems. But you can't. You know, our focus needs to be on God and pleasing Him. And that, that's more important than pleasing people. So we see Peter and John, they're in jail. Then they go before the Sanhedrin. And once again, you know, Peter stands up and the Holy Spirit takes over him. You know, he, he stands up for Christ where, you know, so, you know, not long ago, he had denied Christ three times in, in the same area. And so, but here's the thing about it. The Sanhedrin is kind of puzzled because they see that these men had been with Jesus, but they don't know what to do because for one thing, there there was this lame man that was now healed. So they're like, okay, how do we handle this? And so they threatened them not to, to preach in the name of Jesus and just let him go. You know, they... And, and so that's just essentially what happens because they, they just were kind of confused. Well, how, how do we handle this? And then... You know, Peter and John, they go and, uh, you know, when they're released, they go back to their friends and tell them what, what the council had told them. And immediately you see that the group goes into prayer. And first they, they acknowledge that God is sovereign. And this word is translated as in, in the Greek is despotes or correctly translate dispo you know it may have a negative connotation today but it's not as original or primary meaning it it refers to a ruler with absolute power and authority and it's used to describe a God who is in total control. So even though, you know, Peter and John's 
situation seemed out of control, they were saying that no matter what it looks like, you, God, are in absolute control. You are our sovereign Lord. And, you know, as Christians, we're not accidents waiting to happen. We live under the sovereignty and the divine plan of God. And in those times that we need to fall back on God's sovereignty often is the very time when it looks like he's not sovereign and things seem hopelessly out of control. You know, essentially what is going on in in today's world with coronavirus and the riots and the political season, we have to remind ourselves that God is in control and and just continually saying, God, you're in control of all of the, you know, of what's going on. You're in control. No matter what we see all around us, you're in control. And I just love this next few verses where in their prayer it says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They didn't, did not pray for protection. They did not pray that the persecution would end. They prayed not for vengeance, but for courage. You know, they asked God to give them courage to continue doing what was right. And they asked for the strength to speak God's word with boldness. And they asked for God to move among them and stir the people again with miraculous signs and wonders in Jesus' name. And when they were done with this prayer, the place was shaken. And this was a sign of their, of your, of their continual advance. And they're filled with the Spirit again. And that's just something that we, you know, that... It, it models what we should do when we come across opposition. And so, you know, we get through chapter four. And essentially, you know, in, in chapter five, well, at the end of chapter four, we find out that they're all, you know, all the believers are one in heart and mind. And we see... Uh, the growth of the church beginning to happen. You know, the the believers are, are sharing their their possessions and and we notice a, a little bit more at the end of chapter four, just some of the things that were happening that we know, you know, gives us ideas on how a church should look and and the attitudes in a church and there was unity and selflessness as exhibited in 32 you know lack of unity in the church is no laughing matter you know and we talked about that uh, in the past podcast about unity we see that Christians too often split up over non-essentials and you know, it takes more than a name to show the world that Christians are united. And the first trait of the early church is that they were united. And it, it showed in their financial care for one, for one another. 
you know, they, and that they were all in one heart and mind, as, as we see in verse 32. They had a powerful testimony in, you know, Luke writes, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. You know, they, you know, we're not told that they spoke about the importance of giving to the church. You know, we're not told they spoke about unity. They talked about the Lord's resurrection. This was the focal point of the gospel. And we always have to keep our focal point today is the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ at the center of our, of our message. You know, it's powerful. You know, it's, it's powerful, the resurrection of the Lord, for it's his story. And, you know, we have to keep our priorities straight. You know, and we see with generosity, we meet, you know, we meet Barnabas, which he, his name essentially means encourager. You know, he was an encourager and... He gives freely, you know, out of out of his own abundance. And this is where we we see the story about Ananias and Sapphira, which people go, my gosh, God is so why was God so harsh to Ananias and Sapphira? And one thing is they were what it was is they weren't in trouble for for holding back the money. It was because they lied to God. And uh, what it was is they were seeking personal recognition. They had this lying testimony. And we don't know how Peter knew they were lying. He probably had heard about the price of their land. Or it was one of the gifts of the Spirit, the word of knowledge that operated through Peter. And we see this with, with the judgment that happens. And people go, okay, this was really harsh. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira that, that they died? First off, you know, God is responsible for the manner in which he judges our sin. And, and second... We see with Ananias and Sapphira's experience, you know, it tells us it involves credibility. So God chose to move his judgment into the present as a clear warning to the church to walk in purity. And secondly, you know, the heart of Christianity is the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, at the birth of the church, the whole credibility of the Christian message fell upon the witness of the apostles and others who were eyewitnesses. The integrity or credibility of these people was about all that all they had going for them. So had the lie of Ananias and Sapphira become known but left unaddressed, the credibility of the entire church would have suffered. So... It's showing that God holds truth very de dearly. So, you know, really the moral is, you know, it, it motivates us to avoid sinning. You know, because even our own lives 
is a testimony and a sin that is left unchecked, you know, could affect not only our credibility as a Christian, but other Christians as well who are walking in, you know, walking with the Lord and doing the Lord's will and they had nothing to do with it. But people tend to associate when one Christian is bad, then all of them are bad. So, as we continue on, you know, in, you know, chapter 5, we, we hear that they're, they're healing many. That there's these signs and wonders. You know, a church cannot manufacture miracles, but a church can have an atmosphere of faith and worship in which God can perform his acts more easily among us. So, you know, supernatural events continue to help the church grow today. You know, and many people go, no way. You know, signs and wonders are done. And, but then, you know, you've got those when you ask them going, well, this person was prayed for and they were healed. Explain that. Then they're going, well, God just decided to choose to do a miracle. They kind of tend to flip back and forth. But supernatural events still continue to happen, and we see it even not, or even listed in, in historical texts beyond the Bible. You know, this Justin Martyr, you know, wrote that believers of his day cast out many demons and healed the sick. Arrhenius, you know, who was AD 140 to 203, wrote that some in his day cast out demons and healed the sick. He said it was not possible to name the number of spiritual gifts God had given to believers throughout the world. Tertullian wrote about those set free from demons and healed in his day. Ambrose testified about healings and tons in his lifetime. Augustine wrote about the blind, the sick, the demon-possessed, and the dead who were healed in his days. Martin Luther uh, cured the sick in the name of Jesus. John Wesley said that spiritual gifts were taken away for two reasons. First, because of a lack of faith and holiness. Second, because dry formal men began to ridicule whatever gifts they themselves did not have. Furthermore, these leaders described God's gifts as insane and fake. And Wesley's journal describes more than 200 healings in his ministry. And there's even more, even more that continue to happen. And we see that they continually to meet publicly despite threats and warnings. And then only the truly committed dared join the church, you know. It, it says no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And where, you know, and you think about like in some countries today, Christians are pre persecuted by their own government, you know, um, and in some places, it's a crime for churches to meet if, they, if they're not licensed. Uh, churches that teach the gospel are almost never approved. You know, there's some areas. I'm not going to list them for, for protection purposes for some people. 
And there's a story about, you know, one house church had a, a secret meeting and it was interrupted by an armed soldier wearing a government uniform. And he stood at the front of the church and threatened the believers. And he gave one chance for those who were not willing to suffer for their faith to leave now and never come back. Several in the in the group left, some sobbing, their heads hanging and eyes downcast. Others prayed aloud and the rest remained. They were wide-eyed in fear, but they were determined to die. And after, you know, given one more chance... You know, the soldier said, good, and he lays down his weapon, loosens his collar, and he's like, I would like to join you and hear what you have to say, but I will not join with any who are not committed enough to your God to suffer for him. So that's really huge. We see that God used Peter supernaturally, that even people were laying the sick into the in the streets and laying them on beds and mats just hoping that his his shadow would fall on them and they would be healed. They were reaching, you know, the the suburbs of Jerusalem. You know, and they were persistent um at this point. But what happens is pers- persecution rises again. You know, the apostles are persecuted again in chapter 5. Um we see, you know, the high priest and all the associates, they were filled with jealousy. And they arrested them, threw them in jail. And so once again, they're essentially thrown in jail. They're persecuted again. And we see with Satan's attacks, you know, the strategies used against the church and acts are the same today you know uh three satanic strategies against the church uh include you know he tries to defeat the church by causing doubt fear despair or sin uh he tries to cause the christian to blame god or others he tries to defeat the church by causing division it's often done through the selfishness of individuals. Many times he uses doctrinal issues to divide the church. And then he tries to defeat the church or individual through persecution or seduction, as we see here. Actually, persecution and seduction are two sides of the same coin. The seduction of material gain often weakens the Christian's faith. Persecution often increase, increases his or her faith. So... In Acts, we we do not see Satan using seduction to any degree. That comes later in church history. And so, you know, they're in jail, but there's this divine intervention. An angel of the Lord opens the door of the jail, and they go back out. And once again, they're found preaching the gospel again. And... And in the class that I took, I had to go through all the parts and acts and find out where there was divine intervention. And not all the time was there divine intervention. Now, there was an angel that led him out, but there was, you know, not all had divine intervention. 
and we see as they're trying to figure out what to do because once again they're like these people are not listening to us they're they're still preaching the name of Jesus and and finally a man named Gamaliel which his name is going to show up later again in regards to another character in the in in the book of acts he was you know one of the most loved and revered rabbis of the first century and he was a leader of the Hillel school of the Pharisees and the most influential Pharisee in the council and he rises to speak at the moment uh, because at this time the, the Sanhedrin are just ready to order the apostles ex execution but Gamaliel's high position is seen by his authority to order the apostles out of the room and his ability to sway the Sanhedrin to a more moderate position. He gives these examples to prove his point. He, you know, tells them to leave the men alone, let them go, you know, if their purpose or activity, you know, is of human origin, it will fail, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And so, you know, he's, you know, essentially doing, you know, standing up for him. He wants them to be set free, but instead they end up actually flogging the apostles. And once again, we look at their reaction after, you know, being flogged and they leave the Sanhedrin and they're rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering. Disgrace for the name of Jesus. And, and we have to remember, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do we look to, you know, look for persecution? No. Do we want persecution? No. We still want to live a normal, happy life, but... It's going to happen because you're going to come across opposition in a world that opposes God. You know, it's going to exact a cost from us. And this early church in that time was prepared for that kind of suffering for the, for the cause of, of Christ. And so, and they continue on. They don't stop preaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. And so we're going to take a quick break and then talk about the last three chapters. We get into chapter six and another attack on the early church happens. And it's through trying to bring division. And what we see, what happens is there's a disagreement between the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Grecian Jews were those who had come back to Jerusalem after living in foreign lands. They had picked up the ways of those lands, but many of the Grecian Jews had never learned to speak, read, or write Hebrew. You know, and Hebraic Jews were longtime residents of Jerusalem. They did not speak Greek and avoided Greek ways. And... Their widows were typically cared for within the synagogue 
but not the Grecian Jews. And as the church developed, the community of believers also took care of the Christian widows. Because probably most Christians were... more. Most Christians were probably expelled from the synagogue in that time. And so when they're... When the spouse died, the widow needed somebody to take care of them. So, but we see with Greek-speaking widows, they faced what they had faced in their pre-Christian experience. A cultural prejudice against them that made them feel they were not treated as well as the Hebraic Jewish widows. So, they began murmuring about the situation. And... You know, and that happens. You know, we we see with people who complain, they're not really interested in finding a solution. They just want to let everyone know they are discontented and all of that. But we see how the church in chapter 6 handles this conflict. You know, the apostles, you know, they took five steps when they faced with division in the church. You know, one, they recognized the problem existed and they took intelligent steps to solve solve it. If they would have ignored it, it would have cultivated, you know, the problem would have culminated and probably made worse. They didn't, they did not condemn or accuse either side. Uh, they honestly faced their own limitations. They recognized that their first priority and calling was to preach and teach the word. And so they were open to change because they ended up um, and, and delegating authority to others who were qualified and capable. And we see they choose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch. And these are all Greek names. So they, they pre pick Greek Jews to and delegate the authority to them and and there was also this how they choose them as well as that they had to be full of faith in the Holy Spirit and they had to be you know known to be full of spirit and wisdom. So, and the responsibility was turned over to them. And we see that they, you know, take over their, their duties. And it, and we see with Stephen, now it, it focuses mainly on Stephen. He was a man full of God's grace and power as, as it shows in, in the word and wonders and miraculous signs work through him, even though he was handling you know, things with the widows. God started working with him more as, you know, as he was given little, God started working with him more. However, opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Now the synagogue of the freedmen these were Jews of Cyrene in Alexandria as well as the provinces of of 
Cilicia and Asia. And they were likely descendants of slaves who had been deported to Rome and other places by Pompey in 63 BC. And these people had returned uh, from Cyrene. And so, and so opposition arises and they end up beginning to argue with Stephen, but they, they couldn't stand up against his wisdom or spirit. And so he's arrested and he's charged uh, with, you know, speaking against the law of Moses and against the temple. And we get in chapter seven and chapter, you know, because at the end of chapter six, they had all these false witnesses and, you know, testify against him. But we notice that the Sanhedrin looks at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. We get into chapter seven and it is Stephen's speech or his sermon, or it's also called an apologia, where we get, it's the Greek, or it's actually called apology, but it's the Greek word apologia, and it, it implies a reasoned defense of one's faith. And so Stephen, it's a very long, long defense, but essentially you know, we see in verses 2 through 17, God's relationships with the the patriarchs. 18 through 43, Moses and the law. Acts 7, you know, 44 through 50, Solomon's temple and God's presence. And 51 through 52, pattern of rejection. And to kind of just sum it up, he was showing about, or he was defending and talking about that essentially you know his conclusion is that the Sanhedrin's repeated refusal of Christ was rooted in the evil spiritual pattern of Israel's history you know Abraham had believed without the evidence of land son law or temple but those who rejected so clear witness as Jesus were not the heirs of Abraham's faith they were uncircumcised in heart and ears. And, and we also notice too that his, if you look at Stephen's uh, sermon, it's similar to the book of Hebrews because he's starting to point out going, okay, if we're saved by Jesus, why do we have to continue doing these sacrifices and, and following these traditions of the law. So he's, and he's also, it's kind of like uh, Martin Luther as well. It doesn't go well for Stephen because essentially they, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth and Stephen, he has his heavenly vision and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen essentially becomes what is called the first martyr. Martyr means witness. And he he dies for the faith. And they stone him to death. 
and there's a young man named Saul, which this is his Jewish name. We know him as the Apostle Paul, which that's his Roman name. And so uh, Stephen is, is stoned and Saul is there approving his death. And because of that, we get into chapter 8 and there's this in, uh, persecution that arises. Saul begins to persecute the church and and the believers. And there's this persecution that happens. You know, and all except the apostles are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Why does, you know, the apostles not go? Some believed that, you know, being the shepherds, they felt like they couldn't leave. They had to defend the area. And some believe that um, just because of because Stephen wasn't preaching the gospel. He was defending, you know, the, the fact that we don't have to do the Old Testament sacrifices anymore. The apostles were still practicing Jewish customs in that time. And so they are essentially probably the ones that weren't. They were probably going, okay, because they still were going through a journey. And we see with Peter later on that he, he goes, has a vision of animals and, you know, being taken up or animals on a sheet. And he's like, I don't eat unclean things. And it's essentially, you know, God is, is showing them that they're like all... Old Testament things had been fulfilled through Christ. And so they're still doing the things that they were doing before. And in chapter 8, we see that they're scattered. And you got to be thinking, okay, how could God work through persecution? And at this time, you know, everybody is, you know, scattered. But we notice that those who are scattered, they're continuing preaching the word wherever they went. And we see God turns what was meant for for evil for the church. And he essentially works it for the, the gospel to, do, to be spread. Because as I pointed out in the past podcast to focus on was in verse 8 of chapter 1 that you know, Jesus says, you know, you'll be my witnesses. And he lists, lists Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and and all to the ends of the earth. And essentially, they were still stuck in Jerusalem, still preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, and it wasn't going anywhere. We see here in chapter 8, the gospel going to Samaria, which as we talked about, in the podcast today, Samaria was the people who, it was a mix of those from the northern kingdom of Israel that were brought back and they intermarried with, you know, the Assyrians and, and the non-Jews. And they were essentially worshiping God, but worshiping other things as well. And they were not well-liked by the Jews. 
But Philip, who goes, he he flees to Samaria, and he is actually a Hellenistic Jew, and so he is not probably as as partial or as you know against Samaritans as a regular Jew, and. Philip goes and we see that there's the Samaritans receive the gospel and they're they're baptized we see God moving and there's this you know little thing about Simon the sorcerer and he essentially is you know goes from being low man on, on or high man on the totem pole to you know, being low man now, and but he's in, he gets baptized as well. Now, root, you know, news reaches about Samaria, and the apostles go. Now they go, they send Peter and John, and it's more of a fact finding mission. Is 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 this true? Because they never had planned to go to Samaria. They didn't plan to preach the gospel to the Samaritans. But they go. And when they arrive, we see they pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit which is a totally different attitude as we saw in the book of Luke where they wanted to, the apostles wanted to call fire and brimstone on them when, you know, when they were rejected. And so this is a total different change of attitude. And so God ends up taking this persecution and and it, and there's more to it. You know, we do see Peter rebuking Simon. This is where we get the, the term simony, which means, you know, selling a ministry or, you know, for, for money, essentially. And he rebukes Simon, for the sorcerer, for it. Then we have the story of Philip and Ethiop- the Ethiopian. And... You know, there's this fruitful ministry in Samaria and the angel of the Lord tells Philip to, to go, go south to the road and tells him to leave and he obeys, you know, and sometimes, you know, there may be a fruitful ministry going and God will call you to leave and you have, have to obey in that area. And as he goes, he comes across this Ethiopian and the thing about this Ethiopian eunuch, you know, one, he was a eunuch. He was not a Jew, but we see he's coming from Jerusalem. And what we know from what Luke writes is that he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And he was sitting in his chariot. And here's the thing about it. He was a eunuch. He was not a, you know, a true Jew. So there was no way, you know, based on the the Jewish belief, he could never get close to God. 
There was no way that he could get close to God. And he had come back from Jerusalem. And I, you know, we don't know what, if he did come across any of the apostles. We don't know that were there. But we know that none of those apostles had reached him. But he was hungry. He wanted to be near God. And God met him. He was going to meet him no matter what. And, and that's how God is with anybody that is hungering. He's going, he's going to pursue them. And so Philip goes and explains Isaiah and the part in Isaiah that he's explaining is, you know, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth in his humiliation. He was deprived of justice who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth. And if they actually would have read further in that part in, in the book of Isaiah, it actually talks about God was going to let in the Gentiles and, and the eunuchs into his presence, into his temple that he was going to accept them. So, uh, he, he evangelizes to him you know, out of concern and the eunuch ends up getting baptized and then the Holy Spirit takes Philip away and he ends up um, going to Azotus and traveling, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. And that was the end of chapter eight where we ended off and, you know, six, seven and eight you know, really resonated with me during the whole coronavirus thing. And I actually wrote an article about how the church could, you know, how the gospel could spread during this coronavirus, because as you saw with coronavirus, everything was shut down, churches were shut down. But, you know, through this whole thing, there's good news because the gospel was being spread on Facebook, different live streaming events. So, and this is a time, and, it, and it's not over yet because coronavirus is still happening. We have the riots now. We have all these things, and it's a time for the church to rise up. And I'm not going to go over my whole article because I'm actually going to be pu publishing it on a blog that I will be putting the link to, and you'll be able to read that when I get back from vacation. But that link will appear and you'll be able to read, you know, what I ended up coming up with as I researched that. And so that was pretty much it for the book of Acts. And there's just so much to it because I took a class on it and there was so much on it that I was just like, wow, okay. But, it, you know, we, we can learn from the Acts church, the early Acts church, how, you know, our lives as, as believers should be. And as a church. So for the two weeks of reading, there's Acts chapter 9, um, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, which seems like a lot, but a lot of it is the different mission or the missions that um, the Apostle Paul goes through. So we won't go you know, into so much detail on all of those, but that was it. So we will see you in two weeks.